Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Welcome to episode 14 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts. We have another guest host joining us today, Shirag Date. Hey, Shirag. Hey, everyone. So Shirag is an urban designer and planner with us at Modern Mobility Partners. Shirag, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, and your specialty? Sure. So my undergraduate background is in architecture. Uh, I did my master's in city and regional planning from Georgia Tech uh, with a dual specialization in urban design and land use planning. Most of the projects that I have worked on since then have been uh, livable central initiatives, corridor revitalizations, master plans for private developers, uh, and mixed-use town centers. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. So in today's episode, we're going to go through nine steps to designing the curb of the future. So with that drama, I will then lead into the next. I was going to go, (laughs) (laughs) So we're off to a good start, aren't we? (laughs) So we all know what a sidewalk is. Uh, It's essentially part of the street right away reserved for pedestrians. An area where you can walk around at your own pace, soak in the city a refuge away from the cars, and it'll connect you to the various land uses along the street front. It's a place where you can sit down, enjoy a cup of coffee as you see people walk by. And I just thought, I bet we have some interesting people watching stories, but that's a whole nother episode. So with the advent of the automobiles in the mid 20th century, sidewalks became a necessity to provide a safe space for pedestrians and a connection to the services provided at the curb. Now, when we talk about the curb, the curb area can be defined as the edge of the sidewalk. And this is where cars can be parked. Delivery trucks can wait till the package is picked up or delivered. Buses and rideshare vehicles can wait for people to arrive or depart. You know, these curbsides, including parking and loading regulations, have conventionally been based on the immediately adjoining building functions. Parking meters in front of retail, no parking areas in front of warehouses, loading zones near supermarkets, etc. The list goes on. So as people move away from cars as their primary mode of transportation, these curbsides can evolve to provide more uses for the future. And, you know, I just kind of think about how folks, you know, the younger folks are kind of moving. They are moving away from vehicles being their primary form of transportation. My 16-year-old, and and they've been 16 for a while, has not really been chomping at the bit to get their driver's license. We've had four lessons. Now, that includes all the way back to when they turned 15 and got their learner's permit. So in a year and a half, Hester's had four lessons. Part of that is my fault. Well, I don't I don't think that that's uncommon. I've talked to a lot of people with teenagers or young adults that have just shown zero interest in driving. Now, I don't know how you get away with that if you aren't living in a more urbanized area. I mean, I guess you can get, you know, ride sharing, but there's a cost associated with that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of younger people that driving is not something that they're interested in. And so 
you know, we want to think about making spaces for all users. Yeah. And I, and the thing that I hear, and this is with my niece and nephew too, both of which are in college now, but they're like Uber. We just Uber lift places. So, you know, it provides them more flexibility at times because they don't have to worry about finding a parking spot. Yeah. And I don't know what Uber and Lyft prices are going for right now. I don't know if they're more expensive or less expensive than gas. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we're already familiar with some alternative uses of the curb and parking spots as they have become more commonplace in recent times. But I'm sure you've come across loading zones, bike parking stands and the like. So in your day to day life, as you navigate your city, the COVID-19 pandemic you know, kind of made us look at things a little differently. That led to some changes in people's perception of how curb space could be used as more parklets, refuge areas, seating areas, particularly with the restaurants trying to provide outdoor seating during COVID. Uh, Wider walking areas were experimented with. So it really kind of changed how we thought about how that prime, what I call prime real estate along the curb could be used. And, you know, we already talked a little bit about ride sharing, but with the advent of new technology in ride sharing and delivery and eventually the regular use of driverless vehicles on the horizon down the road, street parking might not remain a majority use along the curbs. And we'll talk about that in a lot more detail on our next episode as we talk about parking and driverless vehicles, but because that's a whole episode in and of itself. But it certainly poses um, new insight and questions. So one example of how curbs can be managed um, is from Seattle. So in 2016, the city of Seattle adopted new policies where they defined the curb lane as a flex zone. And within that flex zone, they ranked curb use priorities according to different street types. So on commercial streets, for example, the city prioritized uses like freight and passenger loading over metered parking. And we'll talk a little bit more about flex zones later when Sherrod gets into his steps. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about how curbs impact us as, you know, the general the general public or people walking around. You know, first and foremost, curbs kind of provide that barrier between cars and these other more active uses, more vulnerable uses. Uh, of the street and and also they provide you know stormwater management so curbs are designed to catch water runoff that then runs into storm drains and then you know goes into the stormwater system but adjusting the curb can have a lot of impacts and benefits on our everyday lives so as kelly mentioned adjusting this use to fit more needs for all users Curbs may essentially disappear and more of the curb space may be retrofitted for other uses like those parklets or Mm -hmm. outdoor seating. Uh, One example that comes to mind is we had the we had the pleasure of working with the city of Atlanta on a demonstration project that's still going on right now in downtown Atlanta, where they are experimenting with a shared space concept, essentially removing the curb and making the entire road network and sidewalk from building face to building face, all one shared concept. But there are also examples of this from Seattle, Chicago, London, and other European cities that essentially fuzz or blur the lines of what is a pedestrian and bicycle space versus what's a vehicle space. And essentially, if there's less demand from vehicles fighting for curb space, 
especially as we talk about autonomous vehicles in the future. This could open up a lot of opportunity to include more placemaking and making the curb and the sidewalk more comfortable for all users, which can have a great impact on you know, that corridor's attractiveness, the economic development, mm-hmm. opportunities for public art and community events. Yeah. Thinking about those impacts, what is our role as transportation planners? I mean, first and foremost, we need to remain abreast with all the latest trends regarding the curb uses, different strategies that cities are using. So, you know, reviewing case studies and research that's been done will certainly help us understand the quantitative indicators of how to manage the curb demand. Additionally, you know, with the technology and parking and curbside management, so there is a lot of technology and curbside demand, Mm -hmm. planners really need to work with those application developers to mine user data and document these changing paradigms of curb use, you know, from going from parking to now maybe most of the demand is in e-commerce and deliveries and uh, thinking about what that curb use might be in the future. And some of the steps we will discuss in this episode um, will not only inform us on how to plan and design the curb of the future, but also how to manage the data that's being collected about the curb and how it's being used and um, help us manage the assessment of an ever-evolving curb. So let's jump in on the first step of designing the curb for the future. All right. Thanks, Kirsten. Uh, So step number one, collecting and mapping the curb data. Uh, As with any design or planning project, the first step is to collect as much data as you possibly can. Uh, There are several things you can document when when it comes to a curb area, things like dimensions, frequency of use, Uh, type of prominent users like parking or delivery, bus stops or bike parking, and the general conditions of the curb as well. A lot of this data can be collected and analyzed using the GIS application, which which we commonly use. Uh, We can map the curb use policies, other regulatory policies such as site design or site regulations within the study area. Uh, This can be overlaid and classified by time of day to add that extra layer to see like if if they change and how they are changing. Mm-hmm. However, similar to policy analysis, uh, it is likely that there is a lack of accurate publicly available geospatial data regarding the infrastructure, especially off-street loading facilities on private properties. The basic parcel data, payment data, etc. can give us an idea of the location and condition of the sidewalk network, but we may have to rely on actual data collection methods to document a more robust data set. Yeah, I think an important part of this step is that you you need to start with a data collection plan prior mm-hmm. to yeah. beginning the data collection. I, I think, Shrag, you are exactly right that when you're talking about the curb, you're talking about private properties using the curb and maybe off-street uh, delivery facilities, so on and so forth. A lot of that information, if it has been collected, it may not be available. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, coming up with a plan of where you may need to collect data will really help you, you know, have a more seamless collaboration and will allow you to kind of compare your data sets between various parties or stakeholders that are involved in this plan and will certainly help you guarantee more reliable data. Yeah. And with the curb data, there's a lot of different facets to it, and it's not always real cut and dry. You know, you really do have to go out and kind of have a street team at times 
to collect the data, to, to ask the questions, to unpeel the onion. So, you know, one example that comes to mind is the Urban Freight Lab. They did a, the final 50 feet research program back in 2018. I believe that was out in Seattle. And they came up with a data collection methodology um, that included several steps. So they identified locations and who the data collectors were going to be and how, what attributes, what information did they want to collect, select the tools and the software. How are they going to collect the information? They had to prepare survey forms. So if you've got people out there asking questions, they need to all consistently ask the same questions of everyone. You know, they create a data quality control plan to make sure the data is accurate. And then, of course, there's recruiting and training the data collectors themselves. Then you have to monitor the schedule because, you know, deliveries and stuff are all happening at different times. So you have to have a good idea of what's going on to go out there and figure out when you need to be collecting this data. Of course, you need to make sure that those collecting the data are safe. And then, as always, conduct the final quality insurance. Uh, making sure, you know, the data that you did get uh, is accurate and complete. And then, of course, summarizing and organizing all the data into something that we can make sense of and understand is is the final step there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel I feel this list does a, does a good job of sequencing the data collection activities. Uh, it includes all the important steps of assigning attributes and monitoring schedules. So everything is sequenced, you collect the data, you assign it to attributes, and you go, you follow... Uh, the data collection process moving towards the maintenance and understanding of the mm-hmm. data. Yeah. All right. Step two, understand the curb use and demand in detail. So once you have collected and mapped the curb data, the next step is to assess the data. This will help you understand how the curb use and demand is affected by other factors. The development adjoining the curb is the main source of activity at the curb. Uh, you can look at the mix of uses in the building, if it is residential heavy or if it's an office tower, uh, what's the density of the development, uh, and so on. You can also analyze how the street fronting uses affect the curb. Uh, other source of activity at the curb is the typology of the street corridor. The type and amount of change in curb activity will, will be affected by where the data is collected from, if it is, a, if it is at a major thoroughfare or a residential street. Yeah, and I would just say that, I mean, there's a big difference as to the kind of information you're going to collect on, you know, busy street, Main Street, basically, mm-hmm. in your downtown and your central business district as compared to your neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another way of approaching the assessment would be to collect curb use data at different times to see how frequently and to what degree the use and intensity of the use of changes at the curb. I, th- I feel like this will add an additional layer to the first two sources of curb activity. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's that's really important because I think you will find that there are different trends for different types of day. Um, I remember doing a study for the city of Woodstock and we were thinking about flex curb space. And um, it was really interesting. It, it, it was interesting, but it also made a whole lot of sense that during the day, you know, the curb was used for deliveries to the businesses on their main street. But in the evening, the curb use definitely shifted to more of a rideshare drop off yeah. and need for parking. And And I would assume that that's a, a trend in a lot of kind of downtown yeah. commercial districts. But um, I think it's really important to understand what those trends are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
during my research, I came across a study that uh, foreign peers had done. Uh, there were actually two curve studies that they did. Uh, they partnered with Uber in completing those studies. And these were conducted along different corridor types in San Francisco and Cincinnati. The study collected data from transportation hubs, commercial corridors, downtowns, uh, bicycle corridors, and high-density office neighborhoods. So like how you were saying, like it's like different areas. So they understand how like the density and the use is affected. Uh, what I liked about the study was how they used quantitative metrics to assess and understand how the curve functions. Uh, they had this metric uh, called Curve Productivity Index, which basically measured the activity that they observed per unit of time, and they normalized it over amount of space. And they were using that standard to to compare the different cases. For this Curve Productivity Index, so is that just based off of the amount of activity, but not necessarily the type of activity? Or did it also include the type of activity? I think in this case, it was just the amount of activity. I think they okay. had a different different uh, metric for the for the type as well. I think that right. measured the impact that type of activity had. On, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just the other, other metrics were passenger loading curb demand or passenger loading impact, essentially measuring how how the impact was affected. Mm, okay. And then I guess I guess having these quantitative measures of comparison helps in checking the effects of the proposed changes. So if you have standard metrics for all these projects, you have a framework to actually measure and understand what is good and what is bad and how we can plan around it. Mm -hmm. All right. Step three is understanding the building operations. Uh, so there are several factors to consider here. Uh, does the building have limited hours of operation? Can a curved space be used for something else when the building is not in operation? How do the trash pickup and maintenance services access the building? How much time do they spend at the building with their vehicles at the curb? Uh, these factors will change throughout the day and should be planned for. I think this is a really important step that often gets overlooked because it's not readily available in any data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is where your data collectors come in, come in handy. This is a, a big part of what you're going to use them for is figuring out what are the different um, operating hours and uses and policies of these different buildings and their operations? Because if you have a building um, in front of the curb that, you know, does not allow any, you know, deliveries in their building before or after certain times, that's going to impact, you know, the use of the curb. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, and that's just one example. The other thing is, is how long does it take? to deliver a package there once they get in the building if it's a high rise and they don't just drop it off with security and they have to go all the way up to the 33rd floor you know it's going to take them longer so yeah and i think you know this this just reiterates the point not only of how important the data collection is but that if you were doing a curb demand plan and trying to come up with solutions for your curb for your curbs in your study area, you need to allocate enough time for this data collection, enough mm -hmm. time and enough money. Uh, because yeah. let's be honest, recruiting and training data collection people, or if you're collecting data through video, the time it's going to take to go through that video mm -hmm. and analyze it, mm -hmm. it's, it's quite an effort. And yeah. so if you're thinking about doing a, curb demand management plan for 
you know, several blocks or for your entire city, definitely think through how much data collection, how much time and how much budget you're going to need for that these first steps. A, that's such a good point. You're right. Step four, collecting survey data on deliveries. So uh, delivery services, like we said, are pretty common. Uh, other than the regular delivery of goods and uh, goods and parcel or package delivery from online shopping, uh, recent COVID-19 pandemic has led to an increase in food delivery services as well. Uh, about 60% of American consumers order takeout for delivery at least once a week. Work from home policies are still being implemented and preferred by people. So this might be something that is here to stay as well. You know, I would just say that we are in my household. Let me put it this way. I should have bought stock in Uber Eats because <laughs> had I known how much we would order from Uber Eats, it's ridiculous. Like at one point I had to start putting them in my budget and I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. But also, you know, I'm one of, so I order everything. If I can avoid shopping at all costs, I will. So groceries, I have delivered, right? All of our household goods, mm -hmm. Amazon, like I'm telling you, Amazon's coming up to there multiple times a day. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And you're not the only one. I mean, I just yeah. had my Chick-fil-A delivered for lunch today. So <laughs> <laughs> really Chick-fil-A? <laughs> uh, yeah. And like, it's amazing. I, yeah. Well, see, at least you didn't have to sit in the line that wraps it's, around the block. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It is. It's worth the extra cost to not have to sit in the Chick-fil-A line. You know what? I tell you who has got they have Chick-fil-A has got that whole drive through thing down pat. Like they know how to manage those long lines and get it moving. And I even think that they were brought in to help with the um some of the COVID vaccine sites because they're so good at that stuff. That wouldn't surprise me. But yeah. Yeah. Chick-fil-A delivery where it's at. Yeah. There you go. Kudos to Chick-fil-A. Yeah. 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 Delivery is is like a major, major component, I guess. And that's the reason why we even if it falls kind of under building operations, because we're also looking at how much time the package takes to get to the apartment, I guess, or to the unit from the yeah. curb. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just we, we separated it as, as a different step because it's just like the effect of it is much higher than others. Uh, uh, we recommend taking a similar approach that we took in step one, I guess. And we have been saying this again and again, like the it's always going to be better if we if we collect live data on surveys, uh, if it's not provided by data mining companies or delivery services. Like the study that I was talking about earlier, they worked, they collaborated with Uber, so they had the data delivered by Uber. But if not, getting the real-time data would be the way to go. This data can be collected by human observers with a similar data collection approach to capture authorized and unauthorized use statistics, leading to a robust, detailed data on curb activity and behavior. Yeah, and you know, I had mentioned Urban Freight Lab earlier out in Seattle, and um what one of the things that they did that was pretty interesting, and I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but they so they developed a, an approach using some technology where they could capture quite a bit of detail of information on how freight moves once the vehicle is parked at the curb until it's delivered inside the building. So this application they developed records the time for each delivery process task. So, for example, they park the truck, they exit the truck, they walk with the goods, they start talking to the front desk assistant, et cetera. So tools like these can be used for um, some of this data collection 
and and they did some case studies for three types of deliveries, goods, um, packages and parcels, and then on-demand delivery, like delivering Kelly's groceries. Um, <laughs> so, it, so they did that to kind of help understand what the trends are in the region. Now, I will say that this isn't cheap. And that goes back to what Kirsten was saying about allotting time and budget to, to collect your data, depending on how you do it. One other thing that I thought about was, you know, Amazon has those parcel delivery lockers mm-hmm. that they keep, you know. And so one of the things that we've kind of talked about before is, you know, for buildings, whether they're residential or, say, office or mixed use or whatever, you know, if if deliveries are currently being made and they're having to go inside and have to go up, up the elevator or whatever, an alternative to that is putting more of these delivery lockers right outside so it doesn't take them as long at the curb. Yeah. And and I know that um, I think it was UPS I saw a presentation from and, and they really wanted to get more use out of lockers because mm-hmm. not only does it save time for the curb, it saves time for their operations. I mean, time is money with these yeah. uh, with these delivery companies. And so the less amount of time that their drivers can spend delivering the packages, um, mm-hmm. the better it is for, for their business model. But uh, one of the challenges with those lockers is that they don't always fit within the zoning Mm. And site ordinances, which, uh, Shrog, I'll let you, t- not not to spoil it, but I'll turn it back over to you for step five. Yeah. That was a nice little segue. <laughs> <laughs> I tried real hard. So, yeah, step five is reviewing the zoning, land use, and site ordinances and policies. So, before we move on to the actual design and layout components of a curb or the sidewalk area, reviewing the existing zoning and land use code for the area to see if there are any policies that may affect or limit the curb use is crucial. These may be related to restriction of access for freight in certain areas, uh, site requirements for location of loading docks, signage requirements, or restrictions on use of electric scooters on sidewalks, etc. Short term, as a developer working on a project, this research will help you to plan your curb within the restrictions or apply for variances, if, if allowed. And long-term, as planners working for the city, this is the place where the results from regular studies and research about future trends can actually come into play. Strategies on shared use for curb spaces could include having fewer street parking spaces in the future as uh, AVs increase their share in the market. And for those that don't know what AV means, and hopefully by now you do because you've listened (laughs) to us enough, autonomous Mm -hmm. vehicles. Yes. Um, so I guess as an example, you know, it's in, instead of using precious real estate along the curb, right? A connected or autonomous vehicle could drop the rider off in front of their destination and then either drive to pick up its next rider if it's a shared vehicle or drive elsewhere to park in, um, a cheaper, less, uh, lesser value space. That isn't in as high a demand as that that curb frontage. So one consideration of the future is to actually remove your on-street parking in certain areas mm-hmm. um, and use that space for other priorities, such as loading and unloading of passengers, as well as loading and unloading of freight. All right. Step six, explore urban design strategies for safer, more pleasant curb experience. 
it is crucial to understand that a curve essentially works as a connection between the vehicular and the pedestrian right of ways. Activities terminating or starting at the curb may be because of or, or affect the different factors on the roads as well as the sidewalks. So pedestrian experience is equally important when we think of curb use. There are several things that we can do to make the pedestrian experience more pleasant. So we encourage people to walk and linger more on the sidewalks. It really depends on the kind of use too, which is along the, along the sidewalk. Uh, for example, landscape design to create safer or wider sidewalks and easy access to park cars would be, would be, would be one example. Cities have supplemental zones for outdoor seating cafes. These became very important during the COVID-19 pandemic where mm-hmm. uh, I feel like even in areas where they didn't have supplemental zones, people just went with it because the businesses were affected. That just tells you that we need that extra space for uh, or, or wider sidewalks even so that uh, people are, are people feel more, feel more safe and more inclusive. And at the same time, the business from the building benefit from it. But yeah, these supplemental zones can be used for uh, spillover indoor spaces, and they also help in social distancing. Scale and design of street fronting facades is also important. It also helps in making the walking experience more pleasant. Uh, for instance, high use of glass in the facade can keep the people in the building informed of the activity on the street, so they know what to expect when they step step out. It helps relieve the shock, I guess, of of interacting between a private space and a semi-private space. Use of human-scale storefronts or arcades on retail streets can provide a semi-private, cozy walking or shopping feel. Or another example would be using fence walls or grand staircases at government buildings, which will provide better sight lines uh, for ride-sharing services or taxis. So people can plan uh, and know where to go to hail one of those services. Yeah, I like this point, Shrug. So I... Have you ever walked out of a building that doesn't have any windows at the entrance and you walk out and you immediately like run into a stranger and it's like super <laughs> awkward? I've done it out of our <laughs> office building. Like I know that like it has glass doors, but you can't see around the corner. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you come out of the door and you make that turn. And I've like literally like run into people and this is during the pandemic. So I'm sure they didn't appreciate like me touching them. <laughs> but I haven't really thought about that. Like. Yeah. How how much more comfortable it is when you have glass and you can see what's going on the street before you step out into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Some other examples would be uh, using wayfinding signage in the landscape buffer area of the sidewalk. So actually using that space to provide more information regarding, I don't know, the bus information or how to order Uber or how to use the Wi-Fi in the area if the area provides it essentially using that green space, which is not pedestrian accessible to provide more information. Signage ordinances for street fronting uses affect how the street looks and feels as well. You know, hanging signs or signs on glass facades or wall signs with pretty lights or some of the signs we see. But like if you, like what the feel, the feeling you get when you walk along a main street as opposed to a vehicular corridor uh, it's also the presence or absence of uses right next to you, but it's also more about the aesthetic feel of it. Like, you know, if the city or the main street has that identity that they want to show that makes people feel more welcome on their main streets, then signage or the or the style of signs uh, also comes into play. So 
And then just a little word of advice. When it comes to your landscaping, make sure you trim back around important signage. And I know that sounds stupid, but yesterday, my nine-year-old and I were driving down the road near Emory University. And my nine-year-old, actually, we're sitting at a light. And he actually pointed out, he said, Mom, that sign is all covered up by the trees. And I looked over and it was a pedestrian crossing digital sign. And it was literally like you couldn't even see the pole and you could just kind of see some lights coming from the sign in the bushes. Like it was all covered up. And I was just, I thought it was interesting that my nine-year-old actually pointed that out. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that's a good point. You know, if you're going to put signage, you're going to put landscaping out there. Take care of it. Or, you know, plant things that aren't going to grow up that high. Yeah. 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 Don't do what I do, which is go spend $200 at the plant nursery for all these flowers when it's springtime. Put them in potted plants out in the front yard and then forget about them. And then they're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do what I do. I feel like that happens, though. You know, like, (laughs) oh, God, we could have a whole other topic on landscaping and my experience with roadside landscaping but yeah i mean it it happens people invest all this money into landscaping they don't think about the cost for maintaining it they're like yeah it'll be Mm -hmm. fine and then you drive by it like three months later and it's overgrown and there's weeds anyways i am not proud to admit that the flower boxes that overhang my on my balcony have fake flowers in them because because I cannot keep them alive. (laughs) It's a no judgment zone. We're not judging you. My kids were like, why do you even bother, mom? Why? (laughs) Because they look nice. (laughs) They do. It's better than it being dirt. I know. Like from afar, they look real, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to curbs. All right. So step seven, uh, consider curbside flexible zones. So several cities uh, like Seattle have adopted new policies that define the curb lane as flex zone. Uh, we did talk about this earlier. The idea is essentially to allocate ranked curb use in different areas based on a framework plan. So this is essentially based on a planning process that actually took into consideration what the community essentially wanted as well and what the city was aiming for. So it's not something that's not that's only based on data it's also based on qualitative data i guess where where more more direction is gathered on where the city wants to go so an example of use of flex zones would be uh you know long term private vehicle storage uh, would essentially be low priority uh for use of cur- curbside space on key streets essentially and uh long term commute parking would generally wouldn't be would not be supported so essentially we we divide the use based on how uh, like what time of the day or what days of the week the the zone the curb zone demand would change yeah so we don't want people driving to work and then just parking their car out front and prime real estate all day long Mm -hmm. you know when it could be used for something else yeah All right. Flexible zones can be specified to have different uses, like parking versus drop-off zones at different times of the day or days of the week. Like I said, Uh, this adds an extra layer of programming based on the curb uh, curb infrastructure data, delivery survey data, and the zoning ordinance data collected in previous steps. Use of curb spaces and spots for tactical urbanism events is also pretty common nowadays. Uh, the School of Design at Georgia Tech conducts a parking day every year, and I do I think it's like an international 
event. It is. Yeah, yeah it is. Mm-hmm. Where students basically convert several parking spots into parklets, and basically they they the idea is to spark a conversation and illustrate how to how the area might look with less car mm-hmm. heavy and more pedestrian friendly infrastructure. Yeah, I think they did this down on Peachtree Street in that shared mm-hmm. space concept that I talked about. I think they did it in the fall of 2021. One thing I I don't want to forget as we're talking about putting together a program for flex space. Mm-hmm. or flex curb space, is the importance of coming up with an enforcement plan. Mm-hmm. Because um, so many times, like, you may see paint on the curbside that says that this is a loading zone, and people don't care. They're not paying <laughs> attention to it. You'll still see, you know, somebody, it, it may be for, uh, oh, a perfect one. Uh, you may have a bus stop that is painted that's supposed to be a designated bus stop area for the bus to park. Yet you will still see delivery vehicles, mm-hmm. Ubers, taxis, mm-hmm. all parked in that designated transit space. And they'll continue to do it unless there's some sort of enforcement in place. Yeah, I agree. One other thing I would just mention that's a good resource is um, as far as you know, figuring out how to do flex zones, and what you might, you know, different types of uses is didn't, Sherog, didn't NACTO put together some guidelines that are available online? The National Association of, was it city transportation officials? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have a, they have a guideline with a whole bunch of illustrations of how curb mm-hmm. zones can be used. And I, 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 I like the way they show it because it's like, like some people don't want to read the whole thing, right? Like it's like the graphics are very yeah. illustrative. They go case by mm-hmm. case and step by step. So yeah, they do. So have we'll that. let's make sure we include those in the show notes for everybody, so y'all know where to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, step eight is uh, design for sustainability and technology. Uh, I guess uh, landscaping. Uh, going back to landscaping again, but landscaping, hardscape, <laughs> and softscape uh, can be used to direct the flow of pedestrian traffic actively or passively, even along the sidewalks and the curb. Uh, like demarcating pedestrian waiting areas for rideshare services, uh, use of green buffers to keep people away from the vehicles, or like some of the ways uh, the pedestrian side of the curb can be managed. Using green infrastructure in form of bioswales, uh, connected stormwater network, and other stormwater harvesting techniques like rain guidance can significantly add to the overall feel of a sidewalk, also helping the city manage the heat and stormwater better. So, Shrog, can you explain what you mean by bioswales for those who may not know? So, bioswales essentially are uh, channels that are designed to to concentrate and essentially channel the stormwater runoff uh, as it, as it removes debris and pollution. Uh, you essentially build networks of this so that the the actual stormwater flow goes along the sidewalk, along the street. So, you make use of the existing infrastructure. You keep the stormwater moving. Okay, cool. Okay. Question. So what is the difference between hardscape and softscape? So hardscape essentially is, as the name indicates, it's like the hard stuff in your yard, like concrete, bricks, and stone. And softscape is essentially the soft growing stuff, like, you know, lawn or perennial flowers and shrubs and so on. Okay. So you could... So bringing it together makes your landscape, right? Yes. Right. And it, it, it sounds it sounds so fancy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, coupled with technology, the whole sequence of people ex- exiting the building, using the sidewalk to getting in the car or using any service they need can be can be made seamless. Short-term ideas such as Wi-Fi hotspots and gathering areas to hail taxis or ride-sharing vehicles can be implemented. Uh, this can also be used for digital transactions with deliveries if needed. Long-term sensors can be used to collect the data on the curb use, uh, wait time, number of vehicles per unit time, loading and unloading time, etc. can be recorded on the go, helping the authorities customize the curb use as needed. So I think in the future when this becomes common, I think the whole having to have a team collect the data might be something which wouldn't have wouldn't be needed to that extent because a lot of it would be collected by sensors. Yeah. And there are curbside occupancy sensors that are used Mm -hmm. at times, but again, real expensive, real expensive. Like when you start thinking about where all you need to put them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I think the ones that are available now, like it it can tell you if that curb is occupied. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how much more it can tell you. Yeah. It can't really, it can't tell you purpose or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So that brings us to our last step, step nine, uh, work towards implementation. Uh, as planners, so we can work with cities and counties to help them modify their streetscape standards and parking requirements to reflect some of the steps that we discussed. So the new developments that come in have to follow them. So you basically start making change at the source. Uh, old projects can be grandfathered in, so they get a specific time uh, within which they need to be in compliance with the change in the code. Uh, this may include any specific changes to the zoning code or adding like a flex zone overlay for an area. Uh, I haven't heard of a flex zone overlay, but, but I feel like that might be something that will be useful because I know there are parking overlays that are used, which, which we'll discuss in the next episode. Uh, again, overlay zones can help define the curb use better in destination centers and other areas. Cities can allow for variances as well as uh, as far as curb use goes. Counties and cities should also document the design guidelines and policy standards uh, that they want that they want the developers to follow. For example, if a developer wants to get his project sanctioned under a P- PUD, like a plan unit development, it's a multi-acre development. Technically, the developer is not has some leeway in changing some of the rules within his uh, PUD site. But just having the data to educate the private developer that, okay, these are some of the steps that you can do to implement curb use better within your development, even if that is available, that would be beneficial. Then uh, public works departments can modify the standards for design and construction as required. This is where I feel like uh, use of uh, landscaping and bioswills and everything comes in. Like if they're required by new developments or if city is in charge of it, what are the ways they can be done, depending on if if there are differences in topography or site or where they can be done, rather, like where they're easy and less expensive to do, and so on. Uh, on the developer side, like I said, if you have a PUD, then you, it would be nice to have a resource to educate yourself on how, how things are being done. Uh, if not, then variance might be the only way to get the curb use flexibility. Okay. Does that wrap it up? Uh, That's it? Yeah, kind of does. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, you know, I've I've been kind of thinking about putting a plan together for uh, curb management. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a lot to undertake. And it's very detailed. 
I was in a workshop for something not related to curb management, but somebody made the comment and I really liked it. And I think it's applicable here. He said, uh, start small and grow big. Don't go big and go broke. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think about it here, like, don't bite off more than you can with a curb management plan. If you try to do too big of an area, you're going to have a lot of challenges getting it implemented. I really think, you know, if if this is something new to your city or county or whatever area you may be in, start small. Start with like a couple blocks and kind of test some things out and see how it goes. And then and then grow from there and develop your policies. Um, Just seems like this. This is something that can really get away from from you really easily. I, you know, I agree wholeheartedly because I was just thinking earlier that perhaps the way to go is start out with a pilot project for, say, a flex zone, you know, along around one or two blocks, you know, and then um, if it works out, then you could invest in, okay, we're going to expand to a larger area. We're going to collect the data and all of that. But, you know, if you're, if you're, if your outcome that you're hoping for is that you can implement some form of flex zones, maybe test it out first, just on one or two blocks, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and yeah, you just kind of expand and build from there because it is, if you want to do a a curbside management plan for a large area, the data alone, the data collection is going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. So definitely start small and go from there. It's a really good point. So any other great insights before we close this one out? No, I mean, Shrug, you did a fantastic job. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today and yeah. talking about curbside management. That's <laughs> an exciting topic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you did great. And I just think it's going to become more and more important as we move along here. So, all right. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. You can find all of our podcasts, including this one, when you go to the American Planning Association website at planning.org and just do a search for Modern Mobility Partners and the AICP uh, credits log, and you will find all of our episodes. Uh, if you want to learn more about how we at Modern Mobility Partners can help, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. We also house all of our downloadable cheat sheets there. So each one of these episodes, including this one, has a little cheat sheet for all the different steps um, that you can grab there. And don't forget to subscribe or even better, review our podcast. And you can find us on any of your podcast listening apps. And with that, we are over and out. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.